I encourage unbelievers not to think of the Bible as divinely inspired. Over 50% of evangelical pastors think that the world is less than 10,000 years old. Now, when you think about that, Kevin, that is just hugely embarrassing. We're not arguing for Christianity tonight. Uh, I haven't presented an argument, a moral argument for Christianity or even for the God of the Bible. Over half of our ministers really believe that the universe is only around 10,000 years old. This is just scientifically, it's nonsense. You ought to rejoice in my argument tonight and just say, I'm going to be a theist, but I'm not going to be a biblical theist. We're not trying to disprove Allah's existence. We are arguing for generic monotheism that is affirmed by Jews, Christians, Muslims, deists, and theists of many sort. No, are you certain that God exists? No. Good. No, are you certain that God exists? No. Good. No, are you certain that God exists? No. Good. Why is William Lane Craig so popular? with so-called evangelical Christians, and is also considered the number one Christian apologist defending the Christian faith today by them. The reason for this is simple. The vast majority of so-called evangelicals are not true Christians at all, but are simply deluded Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, fake Christians. Craig is popular among fake Christians because he is himself one, because he claims Jesus is a liar and was not as knowledgeable as Craig and Charles Darwin are. The problem is, if you do not believe what Jesus said, you cannot be saved. Craig is in the same vein as Mike Lycona, another wannabe Christian apologist with his 80% faith in Christ, which is good enough for him. Listen to this. It will be very interesting for many reasons, especially in light of uh, Dr. Lycona's book on the gospel differences and his fundamental assertion that the gospels contain errors. You remember when we went over the examples he gave and disputed those issues? Um, I do not believe Dr. Lycona believes in inerrancy. He, he says he does. I, I'm sorry. There's no. I do not know of any meaningful definition of inerrancy that he would be able to affirm in light of the things that he said. And, of course, the big brouhaha about, what was it, 10 years ago now? Maybe not even 10. Maybe about 8 years ago? I didn't look it up. But was when uh, Dr. Lycona's book on resurrection came out, and that section in Matthew, in the resurrection narratives, uh, concerning the resurrection of the dead who went into Jerusalem, were seen, some of the dead saints were seen alive by many, that he basically said, that didn't really happen. That, that didn't really happen. It's, um, I never really did understand his explanation. It's, it's your standard way of saying this, that Matthew made this up. I mean, that's what he's basically saying is Matthew made this up. It didn't really happen. There was no historical reality to what took place. And Norman Geiser said, you don't believe in inerrancy. 
he, he talked about the fact that he struggles with doubts um, and that he has his entire life. All right. Well, it was fascinating because in this video, he talks about the fact that, well, his relationship with his father, his late father, who identifies as a hyper-Calvinist. Now, I, I question, honestly, anybody in his group when it comes to their utilization of language regarding Reformed theology. I'm sorry, I just have not found the William Lane Craig, Michael Icona group to have any real understanding of Reformed theology and the history of Reformed theology, and hence, you know, when, when William Lane Craig can go, yeah, there's no difference between hyper-Calvinism and Calvinism, it's all the same thing, you know. I've just heard too many straw men to, to go there, but in the context of the conversation with his father, he says something that really caught my attention. Let's, um, let's go ahead and listen to just a couple of minutes. Uh, do you have this? Yes. No? You forgot to, you forgot to, oh, man, dude. Uh, hold on a second, everybody. Um, we, uh, we forgot to do what we're supposed to do and, uh, and uh, make sure that uh, the connection is working. So I may not be able to show this to you, so I just may have to. Uh, okay, I can blow it up here. That's something we're supposed to do before the program starts, but I'm not in. I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> and you wonder what I have to put up with all the time. Okay. Okay, here we go. You know, my dad never understood that. He was a diehard Calvinist, five-pointer. If there were a ten-point Calvinist, he would have been one. Uh, he was a, a hyper-Calvinist, actually. And he said, you know, if you're a believer and the Holy Spirit's worked in your heart, you're going to be 100% certain. I was like, Dad, I'm not 100% certain about anything. Not, in fact, it's hard for me to make decisions at times over stupid things like what cologne to purchase, you know, years ago, or what watch to buy, or something, you know, things like that, you know, so. Um, I don't shop with Mike. Yeah, she, she won't. Uh -huh. she, she doesn't like to shop with me, and I can understand why. But I mean, it's just the way we're, we're wired. And, um, but my dad couldn't understand that. In fact, a few years before both my parents died, uh, he canceled a Christmas trip. You know, one time he asked me uh, uh, several years ago, I was telling him about doubts, and he said, well, how sure are you Christianity's true? I said, well, about 80%, 80%, you know? And it's like, uh, he just couldn't. He got mad at me for that. And it just stewed in him for several years. We didn't talk about it for a few, several years, but we invited him to visit us in the Atlanta area for Christmas, and they originally agreed. And then he canceled it because he was so upset that a few years before that I'd said I was only 80% certain Christianity was true. And I, a little more now, of course, but um, you know, I was struggling with doubts at that point. A, a little more now. A little more now. So maybe, maybe 85%. Sure. Now, I think that there is, on a pastoral level, a really good reason for apologetics to be done within the church, because I would simply say, from a pastoral perspective, that if you're only 85% sure, you probably shouldn't be involved with apologetics. Just that, I can't see how that's your calling. 
if 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 that if that's where you are. I don't get that. And you see, if 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 apologetics was done in the church, and especially done by elders who are to be gifted to have the ability to do the things they've been called to do, um, then that's totally different than how we handle these things where, again, most apologists just do whatever they want to do. And they go wherever they want to go. They're not really ministers in the church, associated with the church. That's one of the major problems. So I would say on that level, if, if your struggles with, with doubts are at that level, maybe this isn't the area you should be working in. But I think that this opens the door, and again, we could, we could spend another hour literally on this, and I'm not going to spend another hour. I just want to throw these things out there for your, your consideration. I think we could spend another hour talking about what it means to have assurance, yes, on the subjective level, the role of the Holy Spirit of God, all of that is a vitally important area. But what I want to focus on is the fact that I think you see here a fundamental difference between the kind of minimal facts apologetics that Michael Lycona practices, along with many other people, the kind of minimal facts approach and what it results in, and a much fuller biblical form of apologetics, an apostolic form of apologetics. Oh, I just can't believe you'd say something like that. Look, <laughs> these two forms of apologetics, I've, I've been criticizing this form of apologetics for a long, 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 long time. You can go back in the archives, and I've played I don't know how many debates between Bart Ehrman and Michael Lycona from the first time they started, from the time he did the croaking debate, where he had no voice. And I think pretty much everyone since then, we've played them, and we've interacted with them. Yeah, we focused upon Ehrman, but we've also had to focus upon Lycona, because Lycona said a lot of things in those debates were like, no, that's not how you respond to this. this there's compromise here. This is, this, is not, this is not the way to do it. And I will not apologize for contrasting methods of apologetics. This is important stuff. And so it just seems to me that when your argumentation is based upon the preponderance of the evidence pointing to the greater probability of the existence of a God, that that has an impact upon the individual utilizing that kind of argumentation. In other words, as I've said all along, your theology is supposed to determine your apologetics. If you're apologetics ends up determining your theology, and your apologetics is primarily based upon get the best percentage you can, what's your theology going to look like? It's going to be get the best percentage you can. So, hey, 85 is pretty good. But that's the difference. That's the difference between the, the minimalist facts approach and how the apostles approach it and how they absolutely emphasize the centrality of Jesus Christ and the reality that outside of the existence of the triune God, you can't explain having a debate on the existence of God or anything else. That the, the, the epistemology that puts man in the center 
and allows man to be the one to then coordinate all the areas of knowledge must collapse upon itself because man can never be there. The epistemology that underlies a meaningful apologetic approach where God is in the center and you start with him and hence can provide a devastating internal critique of any other worldview and show the consistency of your own, that doesn't leave you with percentages. That actually leaves you with certainties. For more on Mike Lacona, see our BibleQuery.org website about him and read about his denial of Scripture. Here's an example. In his book, The Resurrection of Jesus, page 538, Mike believes there are real contradictions in Scripture. He says they are mostly in the peripheral details. And then it goes on. But our article here on our website, just freeze frame this screen, and you can read it in its entirety and move on with the video. To be a true Christian, 80% or 85% faith is not good enough. You must be sold out completely to Christ 100% or damnation awaits, which even Lycona's dad believes, but not Lycona himself. See the Matthew 13, 45-46, pearl of great price cost of what it takes to be a true Christian. William Lane Craig, Mike Lacona, C.S. Lewis, an apostate Hank Hanegraaff, and other so-called Christian apologists are like the foolish virgins mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. The foolish virgins didn't have the supernatural power of God to believe in God's inerrant word. They didn't have what it took to get into the kingdom with God himself slamming the door in their faces, even though they professed to believe. See verses 10 through 12 particularly. Listening to and trusting phony apologists such as these is akin to what Isaiah 36, 6 says. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. I would like to note, for all you real frontline Christian apologists out there who are serious about reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that since Walter Martin went to be with the Lord in 1989, when I heard of his death, I sat down on my living room couch and cried. I would like to mention to you another Christian apologist who, in my opinion, is the number one living Christian apologist on the planet at this time, named James White. Dr. James White has authored over 20 books, understands the original biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew, has been a professor in seminary, has been in over 150 formal debates against false prophets of all kinds, including formal debates against Muslims inside their own mosques in South Africa, is a biblical scholar in his own right, 
and is, in my opinion, the best Bible answer man I've seen or heard of since Brother Martin went on to glory. Therefore, I would encourage those listening to my voice to improve and strengthen their biblical witness for Christ by going to Dr. White's website, www.aomin.org, and by tuning into his two YouTube channels, Dr. Oakley, 1689, and Alpha and Omega Ministries. Particularly note his Alpha and Omega Ministries YouTube channel and catch his podcast called The Dividing Line and Radio Free Geneva. You will find a wealth of biblical information here. You can also hear him on sermonaudio.com where he has over 1,800 messages recorded on all sorts of topics. Here are some of the books that have been written by Dr. James White. What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran. Excellent information on the religion of Islam from a Christian perspective. The King James Only Controversy. Can You Trust Modern Translations? The Forgotten Trinity. This should be required reading for any Christian wanting to understand the biblical nature of God himself. Scripture Alone, Exploring the Bible's Accuracy, Authority, and Authenticity. Grieving Your Path Back to Peace, Crisis Points. Now this book is very good for those that are dealing with grief and grieving. We also feature James White on many of our Sea Answers TV channel videos. To find those videos that we have produced with Dr. James White, just put in the YouTube search box, James White, Sea Answers TV. Once you hit the enter button after putting that in the search box, you should get an array of the many videos that we have done with James White that our own ministry has produced with him besides all the other ones he has from his own ministry work. Evidence that Jesus is God and the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation Bible is wrong. This has been my favorite video that I have done with James White over the years since we produced it back in 1994. This particular video has helped a lot of people back when it first appeared on Austin's public access television and then on the internet. I wanted to add a disclaimer here that Dr. James White did not collaborate with us in any way in the making of this video. Knowing Dr. White as I do, and also knowing his position concerning consigning professing Christians to hell, because after all, I haven't missed one of his Dividing Line YouTube shows in years. I am sure he would not agree with our final conclusions concerning William Lane Craig, and he has every right to do so. Please let it be known that our conclusions about William Lane Craig are not those of Dr. James White. Thank you. Uh, obviously, uh, once again, we face the reality of attempting to describe what an evangelical is to even identify what that might mean and it's tough to do um 
But uh, a new survey conducted by LifeWay Research released by Ligonier Ministries revealed that 52% of Americans and 30% of evangelicals say they believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. So that, that means 70% disagreed. So I suppose we could take that as a positive thing in some way. But then again, that would mean that that 30% is pretty much agreeing with the Muslims, even though the Muslims would say he was more than a good teacher. And Jehovah's Witnesses, who also would say he was not God, but at least they believe he's Michael the Archangel. <laughs> I, I mean, is it really possible that there's a third of people identify as evangelicals who do not have as high Christology as Jehovah's Witnesses? That's depressing. Um, <laughs> it's just like, uh, um, so, uh, one of the quotes is here, statistics like, statistics like these from the State of Theology survey give us quite a shock, but they also shed light on the concerns that many American Christians and churches have expressed for decades, said Stephen Nichols, the chief academic officer of Ligonier Ministries, as the culture around us increasingly abandons its moral compass, professing evangelicals are sadly drifting away from God's absolute standard in Scripture. It's clear that the church does not have the luxury of idly standing by, this is a time for Christians to study Scripture diligently, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How do we make sure that the next generation knows that, yes, Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a wonderful prophet. He is our high priest. He is our king. He is Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. And he is Yahweh in human flesh. How do, do we function in such a way to where we are basically saying you'll only come to know that if you go to the special classes. But if you just sit in the sermons, we'll make sure you never feel uncomfortable. You'll always, you know, least common denominator Christianity all the way across. Look, there's, there's a lot of people that have taken that viewpoint. I understand that. And if this was a some type of a secular educational system, okay, fine. Here's the difference. We believe that if they're true Christians, everybody's indwelt by the same Holy Spirit who gave us the New Testament that says we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit can accomplish that. So we can call people to a higher plane. We don't have to we don't have to do this secular safe space stuff. There is no safe space for the spirit indwelt person. Okay? No safe space. The spirit does not drive us to safe spaces. The spirit drives us out into service and risk. Okay, here we see Michael O'Fallon, author of Sovereign Nations a media site dedicated to the preservation of national sovereignty. This particular email newsletter, you might say, is called A Generation is Lost and Our Faith and Nation Are in Peril. According to the article here, it says, Although 61% of millennials claim to be Christian, only 2% of that 61% hold to a biblical Christian worldview. A study at Arizona Christian University begins with the revelation 
that 98% of millennial Christians do not believe that absolute moral truths exist, which is the primary drop-off of the cliff of what constitutes an objective understanding of truth, both biblical and through correspondence. Our understanding of evangelism centers on our understanding of this point. If I believe that man's will determines whether or not he'll be born again, then my approach to evangelism is one that seeks to manipulate the will of man and, and just to do whatever it takes to bring him to a decision. Whereas if I understand that regeneration precedes faith, then my goal is to be faithful and clear with the gospel, trusting in God to do that which only God can do. It's interesting at this point, Charles Spurgeon, I, I believe said it best when he said that when it comes to praying for people's conversions, everybody prays like a Calvinist. Amen? We don't say, Lord, would you please, how would you even pray? How would a Pelagian pray for the salvation of someone? How, how would Erasmus pray for the salvation of someone? How, how would an Arminian pray for the salvation of someone? They pray just like a Calvinist. God changed their heart. God opened their eyes. Everybody prays like a Calvinist when it comes to praying for the salvation of the lost. And yet, for most people, they hold to the thought theology of a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian until it comes time to start praying that God would save lost people. Even if we do evangelism like Arminians and Pelagians, we pray for evangelism like Calvinists, like Augustinians. You see, here's the difference. One side says this, I am saved because other, you know, there's two people who, who come to church and, and they sit together. They come from the same family, twins, and they sit and listen to the same sermons their whole life. But one day, one of them comes to faith and the other one does not. Well, the, the Pelagian side says that person came to faith because they exercised their will where the other one did not. They made the right choice, the other person made the wrong choice. They softened their heart, the other one hardened their heart. In other words, there is something praiseworthy in this one that does not exist in that one. That's the danger of the Pelagian heresy. It gives you cause to boast. But the Augustinian side says, there is no boasting. The Pauline side says there is no boasting. Man is dead in his sin and he can't save himself. God is merciful toward the sinner who deserves death. And the awakened sinner becomes an obedient adopted son or daughter, magnifying God's grace. Romans 3, 27. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? 
by the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Boasting is excluded. I am not a Christian because I was smarter than the people who didn't figure out. I am not a Christian because I was morally superior to the ones who chose otherwise. I am a Christian by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Back in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God did this. Praise be to God for his glorious grace in making us alive together with Christ. According to some, this is a damnable heresy. For example, the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent is, is, is a response to the Reformation. The Council of Trent, they, they make themselves very clear. Session 6, Canon number 9 reads, If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Literally, let him be damned to hell. If he holds to the doctrine that I am explaining here this morning, This is no slight difference. This is another gospel. Trent, session six, canon 11. If anyone says that men are justified either by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ alone or by the remission of sins alone to the exclusion of the grace and love that is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and is inherent in them, or even that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. In other words, if you hold to the doctrine of justification by grace alone, if you hold to the Augustinian side versus the Pelagian side, it is a damnable heresy. Why do I share these things with you? Two reasons. Number one, I, I want to show you that the debate continues. But secondly, I want to show you that many people hold to this Roman Catholic idea. Listen to the, second, the first one. Look at look Canon 9. If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification. What do the semi-Pelagians argue? No, 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 you have to cooperate. The life preserver is thrown out there, but you have to reach up and grab it. Folks, that's a semi-Pelagian view. Do, do you see this? This is going back to an ancient heresy. 
Matthew 7, beginning at 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. Verse 21. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, these people were doing good works. But they hear, I never knew you. Which means those works were actually lawlessness. Why? Because we got the order wrong. We believed that it was our obedience that made us right with God. That there was a list of things that we could do that made us right with God. Jesus says, get away from me. I don't know you. There was one door. And it is the door of faith, not the door of works. That which is not a faith is sin. You can be the hardest working person in the church and die and go to hell. Here, every time the doors are open and die and go to hell because you're holding to a Pelagian works righteousness, believing that you are earning God's favor as opposed to trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Council of Trent, Session 6, Canon 24. If anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and also not increased before God by good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of his increase, let him be anathema. Again, this Roman Catholic idea is rooted in semi-Pelagianism. Many Christians hold to semi-Pelagianism. So we actually believe this, that our moralism and our legalism is actually what keeps us in right standing with God. We believe that we're saved by grace, but we're kept by works. Justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but, sa but sanctified through the law. We believe that because we're semi-Pelagian. And don't understand that the grace that saves you, the grace that justifies you, is the same grace that sanctifies you. The grace that saves you is the grace that keeps you. It is... By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. What trouble Pelagius made by his heresy, affirming that man, by natural power and free will, might fulfill the law of God and deserve for himself remission and grace. And to come a little nearer to our own age, has it not been openly preached and affirmed in schools and set out by writings 
that only faith does justify, but that works do also justify? Has it not been taught that good works may go before faith and may provoke God to give his graces? What has been taught of men's merits and of the works of superrogation? Some openly affirming that some men have wrought more good works than were necessary to their own salvation. I pray you, consider if these men said not, our hand and our strength have given these things unto us. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 17. What were these devilish heresies aforesaid and others that have infected the whole papistry? Assuredly, they were cruel and ravenous beasts, able to devour the souls of all those upon whom they get the upper hand. But the merciful providence of our God, willing our salvation, will not suffer us to come to that unthankfulness and oblivion. Speaking of the heresy of Pelagianism, here's another arch-heretic Pelagian named Leighton Flowers. Here's a clip from the video called Welcome to Sovereign Choice Meets, where the meat chooses you. The choice of election. Is it God's or is it the person's? You're not always talking about necessarily God choosing something for no apparent reason, but you're choosing that meat because it's a favorable meat. There's a reason to have the choice of that meat. Is the decision of Father, Son, and Spirit to glorify themselves in the redemption of a particular people through the incarnation, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God? We have a Trinitarian gospel. You have a human gospel. It's very much human gospel. All focused on man, not upon God's purposes. He continues, Therefore, can you say with certainty, there is no reason based upon our... What's the next word, folks? Choices. Our choices. See, I had people running around yesterday, well, Jesus is the chosen person, and, and we're choicing him, and see, you're misrepresenting him. This is what he said, folks. Every single one of you running around in Twitter yesterday with your hair on fire, you're misrepresenting Leighton Flowers. Look at his words. I kept saying to all of you, would you just read the transcript? I took the time to type it out. Would you read it? Not a one would. Nope, nope, no, no. You're just, you're just a mean, terrible, horrible, arrogant, nasty person. <sighs> Therefore, can you say with certainty there is no reason based upon our choices or our decisions, and please note the next phrase, independently of God. Independently of God. This is the flowers. We are autonomous creatures. We can create realities and decisions unknown to God. Again, how does God know the future? How does God know the future in this system? This is the very essence of open theism. That the free creature can independently of God act in such a way, and that's why God can't know. He would make the perfect open theist. And I think the only reason he is not. I would love to see, where has Leighton Flowers put out a video 
on the errors of open theism. Is that out there, anybody? Could someone look? Could someone look at the at the uh, soteriology one on one thing? Is there? Is there? A, is there? A, I'd love to see the video on the errors of open theism from Leighton Flowers' perspective, because foundationally he's right there with them. He's right there with them, independently of God. So, our choices, our decisions, independently of God. Listen, that would cause him to show favor to one person over another. Those are his words. They are not my words. They are not my interpretation of his words. They are his words. That is the context of the choice meets analogy. And he created it. And he did so in response to R.C. Sproul, who specifically was saying, it is God's choice, not man's choice. It's unconditional election. It's God's freedom. And he's saying, it's man's freedom. It's our choices, independently of God, that cause God to show favor to one person over another. Those are his words. That's the context. This debate is done. Every accusation he made has just been proven to be an absolute, bold-faced lie. All you got to do is stop the tape long enough to type the words out and put them on the screen. Stunning. It's right there. How can you... Pure documentation. Any of you can sit there and say, oh, you're misrepresenting him. You aren't living in this world. What color is the sky in your world? You are not dealing with things honestly or truthfully or rationally. There's no way to have a conversation with someone. Who faced with this evidence go, oh, no, not that. So, one more time. Our choices, our decisions, independently of God, that would cause him to show favor to one person over another. You know, when we ask about election, so he's unconditional election choices, he's conflating them. When we ask about election, we are talking about mainly God having favor on somebody, him choosing somebody over someone else. So he's putting choice, election, favor, he's conflating all of them. Matter of fact, whenever we use the word choice... A lot of times we are thinking of kind of kind of the verb form of it. Well, let's stop right there. <laughs> yeah, this is why we challenge flowers exegetically, and he answers with analogies. Because he doesn't do exegesis. He didn't do exegesis in the debate on Romans 9. He doesn't do exegesis at all. When he was on Unbelievable with Chris Date, Date would present scriptures, he'd present stories. He'd give a scripture and then tell a story. He doesn't do exegesis. It ain't his thing. So here's the problem. The only meaningful way to talk about terms like election, choice, and favor is from the inspired words of scripture not from your analogies in English 2,000 years later. But that's what he's doing. 
That's what he does right here. Do we hear anything about kaleo? Do we hear anything about the, the, the substantival forms? Do we go into Ephesians 1 or Romans 8 and 9? Uh, when, when, when Paul says, I endure all things the sake of the elect, the chosen, do we, have any, do, do, we, do we go in there and look at those terms in the original languages so as to have some idea? No. No, instead, well, you know, a lot of times we are thinking kind of the verb form of it, like, I made a choice between these options. But if you go into the grocery store later today, now, folks, I didn't force Leighton Flowers to come up with the choice meats analogy. I had nothing to do with it. He's going to have to live with it. He's stuck with it. The memes themselves are so good. And I am going to Arby's after I get done here because they've got the meats. I'm, I'm going to take a picture. I'm going to take a picture of my double roast beef sandwich. I'm going to do it for two reasons. Because they've got the meats. Because yesterday, Jeff Durbin said Arby's is of Satan. There is now division in the leadership of Apologia Church over this very issue of Arby's. Jeff, you're just wrong. I have challenged Jeff to a public debate on the issue of the godliness or satanic origin of Arby's. And I'm going to prove my point today by going to Arby's. But I didn't force him to do this. I didn't, there, I had nothing to do about him deciding, you know, if you go into the grocery store later today and you go to the choice meat section, the word choice there is used more of an adjective. It's describing the type of meat. It's the type of meat that is favorable over the other less favorable meat. Now, Would you stop laughing in there? I'm trying to, trying to be serious. Well, not really. I was earlier, but I just had to let the blood pressure drop a little bit. A, it is stunning that someone with a doctorate who teaches in a Christian school would make an analogy like this and not recognize the utter impropriety of not only switching verbs and nouns to adjectives, but pretending that doing this in English is a valid way of handling the Bible. Okay? There's no, there's, there's no defense of this. There's none. It's just, it's absurd. If you're taking a basic level, graduate level, undergraduate level, hermeneutics class, red mark right through that one. But this is Professor Flowers who's making that kind of error. And it is an error. Plain and simple. But I'm not the one. I didn't put anything, I didn't put a gun to his head and say, you need to say that the type of meat that is favorable over the other less favorable meat. I didn't make him say those words. And now he wants it. Well, I, that doesn't mean really, though, that God shows favor based upon us being better meat. Okay. Well, let's see what he went on. And so when you talk about something that is choice, notice now the description rather than verb. It's moved away. See, God doesn't do anything. God is controlled by man. 
Man makes choices. Man becomes choice by his choice. And that then means that God responds to man's actions. So when you talk about something that is choice, you are not always talking about necessarily God. See, he's still thinking God here. He's still thinking election. The context has not changed. Not always talking about necessarily God choosing something for no apparent reason. That is, God would never do anything based upon his own will, his own perfect desire to accomplish his own glorification. His God doesn't have that. But you're choosing that meat because it's a favorable meat. So we're in the context of the choice of people here. There's a reason to have the choice of that meat because it's better than the other meat. So the question becomes really in this debate, I think there's only one really. I think I may have typed that wrong, sorry. Uh, the question becomes in this debate, really in this debate, does God really favor some people over others? Are they choice meat? Now, he might want to say, oh, no, 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 no. I didn't mean that. Why don't you just come straight out and say, wow, that's that entire analogy stunk. I stunk it up, and you caught me. I withdraw it. That would have been the easy thing to do. But no, you had to double down. Oh, I'm the one misrepresenting. You took it out of context. Didn't take anything out of context late and just proved it to any semi-unbiased person. Now, I know there are people out there, they're watching this, and I don't like how he's talking, and, and he's saying mean things, and, and anybody who is emo controlled by their emotions, and that's a large portion of people today, I get it. And if they're the people you're going for, they're all yours, because they're not going to like anything I have to say anyways. But any honest-hearted person who is rational in their thought, that looks at the facts and goes, you said this, you said this, you said this. Yep, that's what you said. There was no misrepresentation. Period. End of discussion. It's done. Done. Characterized evangelicalism this way. Egocentric, zany, simplistic, degenerate, half-magic spell nonsense, which is all the world sees when it watches religious TV or looks directly at the professed evangelical community. This is also alluding to a couple of passages in Isaiah. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Take all the supposed wise counselors of Israel, and they were fools. All the wise counselors of Judaism, they were fools. All the wise counselors of any nation, any people, at any level, and they are fools. Which is to say that as smart and wise as they may think they are, like Romans 1, professing to be wise, they are foolish, they cannot attain to the truth. That is what verse 21 then sums up. 
in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. You can't get to God through human wisdom. So I say again, we understand. We understand the Word of the Cross, the gospel is unattainable. It is unreasonable and unattainable. You can't get there on your own. On the other hand, the Greeks search for wisdom. That's a simple phrase, but if you go back and look at Greek philosophy, you find that it is rather intricate, complicated, profound. Oratory was a big part of it, putting people through sort of mental mazes with your erudition, esoteric kind of concepts were what appealed to the Greeks, and they laughed at a God who was crucified by the Romans. The whole thing was utterly ridiculous to the Jews and the Greeks. So there are some barriers here. The gospel, the word of the cross is unreasonable. It is unattainable. It is beyond their ability to process that is because they don't get what they want. It doesn't give them what they want. The Jews wanted a sign. The Greeks wanted wisdom. Jesus offered a sign, His resurrection, and He offered wisdom about sin and repentance and salvation, not a message they cared to hear. This is all compounded further because the people are also unremarkable. If you had a message like this so hard to sell, might help to put it in the hands of famous people. I think sometimes Christians assume that, that if we could just have famous people affirming Christ, this would, this would get past the resistance. But that's not what God designed. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. Verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So how do we overcome this? Look at verse 26 to 28. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are." Not many, three times. Not many, not many, not many. Here's the problem. The people who are proclaiming the gospel are unremarkable. The majority of believers are unimpressive. I remember being on Larry King one night with Deepak Chopra. And he was, 
he was denouncing what I was saying, and he said, of course, you wouldn't understand that, it, that depth of insight which I have, he said to me. And I said, well, actually, I wrote a book dealing with that, <laughs> and I said, I would be happy to give it to you. This is a quote, I would never read anything you wrote. Just sheer disdain. I would never read anything you wrote. Why? Because I'm not part of the intellectual elite or the noble. Look at how Paul piles up these statements of insignificance. Not many wise, not many mighty, that is, powerful, influential, not many noble, that means high-born, literally, high social rank. And then he goes on to say in verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish, the uneducated, the morons to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak, the uninfluential. And then He goes even deeper, verse 28, and the big things, ah, genes, low-born, insignificant. And then He goes even lower, the despised. That is to be, the verb means to be considered as next to nothing. So we're not wise, we're not powerful, we are foolish, we are weak, we are low-born, insignificant people who are to be considered as next to nothing. Then he ends it up by saying, things that are not. That's the present participle for the verb to be, a me, non-existent. We don't exist. This is the most contemptible expression in the Greek language. Those who don't even exist. In the secular world, in the unconverted world, we don't even exist. Lowlifes. So God gave us an impossible message to preach to incapable people, and we ourselves are nobody. Well, you say there's some pretty effective preachers, aren't there? There are. Some of the nobodies are effective in their preaching. But look at chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brother, and I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. So here's the fifth problem. The preachers are unfashionable. The preachers are unfashionable. And therefore, they are essentially unacceptable. I didn't come with superiority of speech. I didn't come with wisdom. 
Rather, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power." They were used to those sophists who had mastered labyrinths of language, and Paul to them was a lowlife. 2 Corinthians 10.10, he acknowledges that they said his speech was contemptible. He lacked the mental sophistication, the philosophical complexity, the exoteric cleverness, the persuasive words of wisdom. I told our people some months ago that there's an anthology on preaching written by a scholar, it's seven volumes, and he has a section on me in there. And uh, I think this is so interesting what he said, quote, MacArthur's rhetoric is terribly out of date, but maybe he knows something the rest of us don't. He goes on to say, why do so many people listen to MacArthur, this product of all the wrong schools? How can he pack out a church on Sunday morning in an age in which church attendance has seriously lagged? Here is a preacher who has nothing in the way of a winning personality, good looks, or charm. He's not finished. Here is a preacher who offers us nothing in the way of sophisticated homiletical packaging. No one would suggest that he's a master of the art of oratory. What he seems to have is a witness to true authority. He recognizes in Scripture the Word of God, and when he preaches, it is Scripture that one hears. It's not that the words of John MacArthur are so interesting as it is that the Word of God is of surpassing interest. That's why one listens. <laughs> I like the part about no winning personality, good looks, or charm, actually. But he is saying what, what Paul is saying, isn't he? The message is offensive. And the preacher is utterly insignificant. The fallen mind can't get past all this. Man's wisdom admittedly can do some amazing things – science, technology, genetics, medicine, industry, arts, culture, all kinds of things. Man's wisdom will not get him to God. The gospel is not available, not available. This wisdom is too high. It's in another sphere. It's in another dimension. Well, you say, how, how does someone come to know this? Go back to the end of chapter 1.
How do we know what we know? Verse 30, by His doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. What? How did you, how did you come to know that? How did all of us nobodies come to know this? By His doing. Let me take you back to verse 18. The word of the cross, the end of the verse, to those who are being saved is the power of God. Verse 24, to those who are the called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are being saved, and who are those who are being saved? Those who are called. Did you hear that? This is an effectual call. This is when God calls the dead sinner to life. This is a sovereign act. And consider your calling. I love this. Verse 27, God has chosen. God has chosen. Verse 28, God has chosen. Why do you believe? Because you were chosen and you were called with an efficacious call out of death into life. That's why verse 29 says, you cannot boast because it's by God's doing that you're in Christ Jesus. Verse 31, you boast only in the Lord. We're not smarter than anybody else. We're not more spiritual. We're not better people. We're as wretched as any and all sinners are. But we've been chosen. And then we've been called, and then we are being saved, sovereignly, supernaturally. If you're in the kingdom, it's not because you had more wisdom than people who aren't. It's because you were chosen, you were called, and you were saved. So Paul says, I don't need to come with superiority of speech or wisdom. I, I just come preaching Christ and Him crucified, and based upon the hearing of the gospel, God saves those whom He has chosen. So my message and my preaching are in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Verse 5, our faith doesn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on what? The power of God. What happened? God came to us in power and gave us life out of death. So verse 6, we do speak wisdom among those, those who are mature or complete. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. God's wisdom in a mystery hidden from everybody else, hidden wisdom, which God, what's the next word? Predestined before the ages to our glory. You were predestined, you were chosen, you were called. You are saved, and that's why you believe the Bible and the gospel. 
William Lane Craig is considered to be the so-called number one Christian apologist on the planet. But there are good reasons for his status. Since he mainly does not preach the Christian gospel, but approaches Christianity more with the false gospel of mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. See our video concerning C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is a false gospel. And C.S. Lewis is a false prophet loved by all. The following is a clip from that video. Okay, here's an example from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. As a viewer at home can see, do all roads lead to heaven? Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, There are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him, but they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. There are people in other religions who are led by God's secret influence, who concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity, and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy and to leave in the background though he might still say he believed the Buddhist teaching on certain other points. Many of the good pagans, long before Christ's birth, may have been in this position, end quote. That's coming from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, pages 176 through 177. Uh, this is another survey. They do them every year. And one of the questions on the survey, this is a survey of evangelicals, was true or false? God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That was the question. Fifty percent of the evangelicals said true. True. Is that true? Then whatever evangelism means, it doesn't mean what it in the Second Vatican Council back in 1960, there was a statement made and affirmed since then by the Roman Catholic Church. I'll, I'll give you words from the Pope who came out of the Second Vatican Council. This is the statement. The gospel teaches that those who live in accordance with the Beatitudes and who bear lovingly the sufferings of life will enter God's kingdom." End quote. So it's the good people. Peter Kreeft, Roman Catholic apologist, said this, the heathen are saved if they live good lives and are sincere. I remember reading these words, I think everybody who loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, whatever that means, <laughs> whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world, they're members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know they need something. I think they're saved and are going to be with us in heaven. They need something. But the problem is, for Lewis, what does the Bible say? First Timothy 2.5, 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is both God and man, and he is the one mediator between God and men. Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. John 14.6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Lewis bent over backwards to find common ground with all denominations, excluding from his books any doctrine that might be offensive to anyone. And this to the point that even Mormons enjoy reading his writings. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis's stated purpose is to provide a non-controversial theology <laughs> of all things. I, never, I could never dream of a non-controversial theology. What doctrine in God's Word has not been the battleground for, a great, for great controversy through the ages? His theology is a generic kind of Christianity that suits everybody who can in any way relate to God. In the foreword to Mere Christianity, Lewis says that he submitted this book to four clergymen, an Anglican, a Methodist, a Roman Catholic, and a Presbyterian, for criticism before its publication. He wanted to make sure he didn't offend anybody. In his books, Lewis also, and this is probably where our children come in mostly today, he sought to blend paganism with Christianity. He had a certain respect and awe for pagan religion. In his book, C.S. Lewis, A Biography, Roger L. Green quotes Lewis on page 276 in referring to Lewis's travels in the Mediterranean. Quote, At Daphne, it was hard not to pray to Apollo the healer. But somehow one didn't feel it would have been wrong. Would have been on, it would have only been addressing Christ subspecie Apollonus. Unquote. Today, C.S. Lewis is recognized as one of the 20th century's greatest writers of Christian literature, popular with both Christian and secular worlds. Working through his own battle with atheism and the Christian faith, he formed a rational and intellectual groundwork for his own faith. His ability through his literary genius to express basic Christian symbolism led to his authorship of the book, Mere Christianity. It is widely sold throughout the world today. Though Lewis lacked theological training, he was able to craft apparent Christian principles at their most basic level throughout mere Christianity. But is this book worthy to be used as a textbook for Christian apologetics? In the book, Mere Christianity, Lewis includes topics such as moral law, right and wrong, Christianity, the Gospels, the Christian view, and Christianity asserts. C.S. Lewis never mentions chapter and verse of any scripture from the Word of God. 
He merely mentions the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke on page 118 of this recent edition. He includes the term Book of Genesis on page 49, and the title The Old Testament on page 51, and he mentions the two words New Testament on page 82. But Lewis never quotes a single entire verse of scripture anywhere in the book. About a dozen times he quotes small partial phrases from the scriptures in the latter half of the book while crafting what he thinks are doctrinal truths in his own words. Partial phrases from scripture such as one flesh, being born again, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Sons of God, God is love. Be ye perfect. And who touched me? It should be clear to any serious Bible student that the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, falls far short of being any kind of a useful tool for Christian apologetics. And the book, Mere Christianity, should never be used as a sincere replacement for or even a guide to understanding the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Christianity is not compatible with any other religion. And all other Gospels are false and damning. If 50% of evangelicals think God accepts worship from Judaism and Islam, that will tell you whatever evangelicalism is, it doesn't even know the truth of the gospel. Craig spends his time mainly philosophizing rather than telling people any kind of theological biblical truth. In this way, by minimizing as much biblical theological truth as possible, he can appeal to a much greater audience of ignorant and unbelieving people, even if they claim to be Christians as well. This methodology works for Craig as it did for C.S. Lewis. Therefore, Craig cannot but help to be popular among this type of crowd. A prime example of this is the fact that most of what is called Christianity in the world today is either apostate or cultic. Even 87% of what is called evangelical Christianity doesn't even know what the true gospel is or what justification by faith is. Here's a clip from our video on that very subject with Dr. Michael Horton. But there's such an emphasis in our preaching on getting better, on improving, uh, on moralism, that, uh, that the, the, the preaching of justification as God's legal verdict in a courtroom really is considered uh, quite impractical by some. And so you look at statistics uh, such as the ones that Barna and Gallup uh, and Hunter and others have done. 87% of America's evangelicals say that in salvation... God helps those who help themselves, and 77% of the evangelicals said that man was basically good by nature. Now, wait a minute. 80-some-odd percent, percent of confessing evangelicals 
are saying that God helps those that help themselves, and 77% of confessing evangelicals are saying that mankind is basically good? Absolutely. Aren't those staggering figures? That, that, that sure is. That's hard to believe. Now, I, I, uh, you, know, you look at the medieval slogan and, and the, the, the uh, sort of saying that they had in the Middle Ages was, God will not deny his grace to those who do what lies within their power. Well, you know, I ask people what would be a modern equivalent, and immediately they say, well, God helps those who help themselves. Right. Well, does that mean that 87% of today's professing evangelicals are medieval Roman Catholics in their doctrine of salvation? Well, I, it would seem so. I don't. Uh, well, you know, they, there's, there's another aspect that fits into this, and it's become so popular and prevalent today, and that's a denial of the sovereignty of God. And, and what God has planned for your life and what God is going to do and submitting to his lordship. Yeah, yeah there's a... I, I think it would all fall under a general human-centeredness. We are... We think that we are competent. Give me a road map. You know, give me the Time Life uh, series on how to fix, fix everything in your house. Give me the religious equivalent of that. And so you walk into a lot of Christian bookstores and you see, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a self-help section that is the bookstore and maybe a few uh, theology books right. um, tossed over to the side. You look at the Bibles, study Bibles that are coming out. What are they called? Life application, um, uh, uh, women's application, men's application, Bible for truckers, Bible for, <laughs> <laughs> for dentists. I mean... It's becoming increasingly ridiculous how everybody's clamoring for application, but there's nothing to apply anymore. There's no doctrine. Next is a clip from Acts 17 Apologetics, a video called Discussing Quran Desecration, Muhammad Cartoons, and Free Speech with a Muslim. That's a Muslim convert from Christianity who is big into Christian apologetics with people like William Lane Craig. And we're going to listen to some of his comments about what led him out of Christianity and into Islam. But I find it interesting on the last clip in this little collage of clips from this particular video that he mentions that he watched a debate between Muslim apologists Shabir Ali and William Lane Craig on the Trinity I knew the New Testament, and I feel like my reasoning was very circular, maybe. But then later, I was like refuting atheists. I was go to the skate park with my friends. This was around maybe 15. I turned atheist Christian. I was turning a lot of people Christian at the skate park. So I was doing my apologetics work, and I really looked up to people like William Lane Craig and Frank Turek. Those are the people I knew at the time. So I was like, I was destined to be like, I was like, oh, I, I want to be this, the next William Lane Craig. I want to be a devout Christian. I want to go out and preach and bring people to the truth. And so I would question these things over time and I would check out other religions occasionally just to test myself. 17 is when it all started. I'm currently 19, about to turn 20. 17 has started by, I saw on my Explore feed, I don't know if you know, Instagram has the Explore search bar and underneath it recommends random posts. So I saw this selfie, and this is when I had fell out of apologetics. From 16 to 17, I didn't really, like, I was kind of, I fell out of religion. I still wore a cross necklace. I believed myself to be a Christian, but I didn't really follow much. Like, I still tried to live as a good person, but I never read scripture or anything like that. So from 17, I was like, 
I saw a picture that popped up on my timeline of a girl, and I was like, oh, I'm, about, I'm about to slide in the DMs. So I slid in the DMs, and since it was one of my hobbies, that's like a natural, even just in terms of a values perspective of what I look for in a girl, I was like, this is something I want. As concerned of like, let's say purity loss, for example, modesty in a belief in a God. So you have a moral law giver, so you believe in a moral law. So I was like, that's one of the first things that's going to come up naturally upon talking to a girl. So I said, do you believe in God? And she said, yes. And I said, what religion are you? She said, Muslim. That was like a shatter for my viewpoint. I was like, what this innocent face and this view that I had of Islam, these do not mix in any way. I'm like, so I go to my New Testament and I read the four gospels, took a few, maybe a month even, but I was reading through, but just trying to read the red letters, which I don't even believe in that viewpoint now, just read the red letters, that's foolish. But so I went on to see he never claims divinity, at least not in that sense of I am God or worship me. And then I went on a rabbit hole of Speaker's Corner videos, specifically Muhammad Hijab, Ali Dawa, and Shabir Ali debates with people like William Lane Craig. And then eventually I was like, okay, well, the Trinity's gone. That's far out the window. Um, interesting. So as a teenager, you were checking out William Lane Craig and Frank Turek. Yeah, that was began at like maybe 13 to 14. Well, that's... Uh... Those are those are good those are good places to go. Um, yeah. Yep, many of us many of us are convinced that William Lane Craig is the the baddest who ever did it on on the <laughs> issues that uh, that uh, that he deals with. And uh, I know both William Lane Craig and and Frank Turk. Okay, so here we have this former young Christian apologist who supposedly is converting all these atheists to Christianity, which is very doubtful. But uh, in his mind, he thought that was what was going on, and then. He finds this foxy uh, Muslim chick, and he uh, starts investigating Islam by watching Muslim apologists. And he watches Ali, one of the leading Muslim apologists, debate William Lane Craig on the Trinity. And his conclusion from that is that the Trinity's gone. So now, apparently, my deduction from his comment is that uh, William Lane Craig didn't do a very good job in defending the biblical concept of the Trinity in this debate with Shabir Ali. And that kind of segues into the fact that William Lane Craig doesn't major on biblical theology anyway. He's more into philosophy, which the Bible itself frowns upon. And we'll get into that later in this video. I'm not really blaming William Lane Craig totally for this guy going into Islam and things like that. I'm simply saying his type of false gospel presentation with Molinism and everything, we'll get into that. Lack of biblical uh, theology, more philosophy, and things of that nature leads to a lot of false confessions and false Christianity. And then it's easy for these type of people to fall away quickly, like the book of Hebrews says. But I wouldn't blame William Lane Craig so much for this guy falling into Islam as I would that this guy simply threw away Christianity for a good-looking Muslim. That seems to be the bottom line here. So I'm not going to blame William Lane Craig for this guy going into Islam. But it does show that uh, William Lane Craig, in this kid's mind, didn't do very well in this debate trying to defend the Trinity. But wait, perhaps William Lane Craig really is weak on the Trinity, which, of course, helps the cause of the Muslims. All right, with that said, let's go see what we find out here. 
The doctrine of the Trinity is that God is not just one person. That's called Unitarianism. Trinitarianism says that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I think that this doctrine is right at the core of the Christian faith. It serves to distinguish Christianity from Judaism and Islam, which are both forms of Unitarianism. We believe that God is tri-personal rather than unipersonal. I don't think that it's necessarily essential to salvation, however. For example, I think that Abraham and Moses will be in heaven. They were saved, but they didn't believe the doctrine of the Trinity. They'd never heard of it. And similarly, I imagine there are people today, people on the mission field who hear the gospel preached over the shortwave radio, who place their faith in Christ and are saved, who don't understand or have an appreciation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And sadly, there may be people in our churches, frankly, who do not understand and believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. But nevertheless, they are believing in Christ as Savior and believing that he is divine, that he's the Lord. Um, and so I don't think that belief in the Trinity is essential to salvation. When I first saw this, Phil Johnson had tweeted it, and um, he had the, the best commentary. He said, this is just muddled. And it is. It's muddled on, on every level. Um, first of all, the doctrine of the Trinity given was rather inadequate. It assumed uh, a number of things. It did not emphasize uh, monotheism. It assumed anyone asking the question was al already understood the necessity of monotheism, which as a philosopher, I'm sure that's the primary thing he's dealing with. But those of us that are out here in the trenches are dealing with a lot of other things other than that. Uh, and so we do have polytheists and uh, other perspectives to work with. So when he when he talks about God being tri-personal, he does not differentiate between being in person, a person who needs that information to, to understand the difference between the fact there's one being of God, three divine persons being in person are not the same thing. Um, all of that is, is passed over uh, in the giving of the definition. And then it's said that this... This serves to differentiate. Well, yeah, that's that's a that's an understatement. Um, it is the essential self revelation of God um, that is seen primarily in the incarnation of Christ, His ministry, death, burial, resurrection. Uh, to the right hand of the Father in heaven, and then he and the Father sending the Holy Spirit. And so this becomes the, the center point of history. And everything before looks forward to it, everything afterwards looks back to it. Um, so it doesn't just serve to do that. It is God's self-revelation in an amazing reality of the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And so... The definition certainly was minimal, but you would think that if you're asking the question, is the, is the Trinity essential, that you would not only define the Trinity very carefully, you would define the word essential very clearly, and it was not defined. What you hear is 
well, it's not essential for salvation, but then as he continues on, you come to understand that what he's saying is, is that you do not have to have perfect knowledge of the doctrine of the Trinity for salvation. That's what he's saying. Um, he talks about people in the church. He talks about the person listening to the shortwave radio in the mission field. You know, that might not fully understand this, that, or the other thing. Um, and then he does get into some of the denials, but even then does not get to the important element of what the denials would actually involve. And so to ask the question is to beg that you define, well, what do you mean by essential? Is it essential to the defining of the Christian faith itself? Well, of course. You know, he says it's at the core. I would say it is the core. Uh, God is the core. Everything else radiates out from that. So what could be more essential than the Trinity? Because the Trinity includes within it the assertions of monotheism, hence all the attributes of God, uh, uh, immutability, everything else is is. The doctrine of God is the central core that defines everything else. And so there's no question about that. And so if you're talking about essential as in defining, of course. Of course, this is why we can't have fellowship with Unitarians. So, of course, it's essential in defining the Christian faith. But that's not really what he was addressing. What he was saying, in essence, was, is it essential to know the Trinity? Well, I would say on a certain level, yes. Since this is the highest of God's revelation, it's his personal revelation, it tells us who God is, uh, to reject how God has revealed himself to exist is going to obviously put you in the position of not being able to worship the one true God. And it's important for everybody to understand this. If you believe um, in things such as the inspiration and errancy of Scripture, um, the existence of a day of judgment, uh, the punishment of the wicked, um, the presence of the righteous in, in, in God's heaven, you're in a very small minority. And the problem is, people get converted, they only know the one church they were converted in, and therefore they don't realize the spectrum, the range of stuff that's out there. And when they find out about it, they feel deceived. Well, I'm not going to be the one deceiving you. Okay? I'm just letting you know right now that and here's, here's, this is one of the reasons I don't use the majority scholars stuff that you hear uh, evidentialists or classic apologists, whoever they want to describe themselves, using all the time, you know, well, the majority of scholars believe blah, blah, blah. Well, the majority of scholars don't believe in the virgin birth, and the majority of scholars don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, and the majority of scholars do not believe in the existence of heaven and hell. And these are people teaching in Bible colleges and seminaries. So you need to be aware of that. That, that means you have to have a, a reason for the hope that's within you. And so it is very common for you to be told 
that heaven and hell as concepts do not appear in the Old Testament or Jesus' teachings. And notice how that was, that was framed, first of all, because they plainly exist in the rest of the New Testament. And the problem is you're dealing with someone like Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman just represents the rest of unbelieving biblical scholarship. I don't know why you want to be a Bible scholar if you don't believe it. I don't get it either, but they're out there. Uh, so what you'll be told, and this is why you, you've heard me say this before. What, what, what do I say the most dangerous place for a Christian is? Huh? Christian bookstore. And I call it a dangerous place uh, because as you walk down, especially the commentary aisle or the theology aisle, what you need to be thinking is that there are coiled snakes on every shelf. Because I've just seen it happen so many times. A, a, a believer, just wanting to know the Bible better, goes to some Christian bookstore, buys a commentary, gets home, starts reading, and is just flooded with unbelief. This never really happened, and this is contradicted to that, and this author is contradicted to that author, and da 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 da. And that's the normative. That's the norm. Finding good, solid commentaries that are actually based upon taking the scriptures as a whole. Oh, all Catholic bookstores. Well, you gotta gotta get your 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 all your saints and candles and stuff like that someplace. Yeah, yeah, Google doesn't know. So yeah. So anyway, what you would find is exactly what you have on the screen right now. Because you have as the background a viewpoint of, for example, the Old Testament that does not see the Old Testament as a divine revelation. In other words, it doesn't view the Old Testament the way Jesus viewed it or the apostles did. And so what you have are all these distinct books separated from one another. And so you can't connect what's said in one to what's said in another. And so there really isn't almost, there isn't almost anything that is a coherent concept in the Old Testament, according to much of modern thinking. Because it's just a, a mishmash of badly edited human documents that has, has absolutely no coherent message on anything at all. And then when it says Jesus' teachings, and you got to be real careful here, this wouldn't include John, for example. Because most of you are sitting there going, in my father's house are many rooms or mansions, as the King James says, rooms. In my father's house are many rooms. I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. What do you mean Jesus didn't talk about heaven? And what do you mean he didn't talk about hell? What? And whenever you have people doing the historical Jesus versus the Jesus of faith distinction thing, and this is central, central to understanding liberalism, to understanding the vast, the majority of people who call themselves Christians in the United States 
believe there is a vast difference between the Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history. The Jesus of history was just this moral teacher that we know next to nothing about. The Jesus of faith is built up by later generations, and this is what you're going to get, get taught. Anywhere you go, secular university, secular uh, college, and sadly, in a lot of seminaries and Bible colleges too, that all that builds up over time. And so there is no Jesus of faith. Or if there is a Jesus of faith, it's just the Jesus of faith that you create in your own mind. It has no connection to the historical Jesus. And so whether Jesus actually rose from the dead or not, whether there was an empty tomb or not, doesn't really necessarily impact um, the Jesus of faith. Because that Jesus of faith only exists in your mind anyways. See? So, all you gotta do here is say, well, no, I can't, I can't look at a text in Job where he professes faith that he is going to, to see that mediator. And, and I can't connect that with something over here to start coming up with a picture of heaven and hell that will only be filled out, especially after the resurrection of the coming of the Holy Spirit. No, no I can't. You're, I, you can't connect any of this stuff together. There can be no Christian theology. Christian theology is just, remember Tinker Toys? I had Tinker Toys when I was a kid. I'm obviously getting old because I'm, I'm posting pictures of the, the first typewriter, uh, which was, uh, it was a, I think it was probably was from the 1930s or 40s um, uh, that my parents had. Uh, so, and now I'm talking about Tinker Toys. Oh, man. He's obviously heading straight down into the funny farm. Um, but I love Tinker Toys. And it would be this round thing. You'd pour them out. And you could do so many things with them. You know, you could put stuff together this way and then that way. That's what the Bible is for liberals. Theological tinker toys. And so you just pour it all out and you can make whatever you want. If you want to do Legos, fine. I never got into Legos, but same thing. Same principle. You get to make whatever you want to make out of this stuff. Because there isn't anything that it's supposed to be. There is no objective revelation. There is no objective truth. That's why I have sat in this chair over and over again and said, if you don't have the highest view of Scripture, there's no reason for you to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is based upon the idea that Scripture is a harmonious whole. Not the simplistic type of thing you get in fundamentalist circles, but that there is a a, a objective truth that is revealed in numerous different beautiful ways. Remember, I've talked about the, the woven fabric of divine truth, the threads that come together. That's what Scripture is. Without that view, there's no reason to believe in the Trinity. I mean, you can go, well, yeah, I've got a traditional reason. Yeah, well, okay, fine. I don't think it's enough, but if you want to say so. But you, you can't say it's a divine revelation from God unless you've got some foundation to it. These folks don't believe that. 
It says, hi, Dr. Craig. I've been studying the perseverance of the saints, and I found your paper on the subject very thought-provoking. Let me stop right there. The perseverance of the saints means that once a person comes to Christ, that the Holy Spirit preserves them, that God keeps them, and that they don't apostatize or lose their salvation. It, it deals with that whole issue? Yes, that's right. Okay. So, he said... I said I was going to play the whole thing, but let me just point out, there is no reason to believe in the perseverance of the saints if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God that results in their salvation in the first place. It's none. There's absolutely no reason to. I'm sorry. It, 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 is, it is almost sad for me to observe those who do believe in what they call one saved, always saved, or eternal security, or whatever else it might be, but they then deny the sovereignty of God in election, an uncondition, in unconditional election. They, they deny that the man's inability to save themselves. They deny um, the particular redeeming act of, of Christ in the cross. They deny the irresistible grace of God. But then they hold on to that last point. Uh, it doesn't work. And you're going to see how disastrous it is right here. I've been wrestling with the subject as of late, and there appear to be certain difficulties with the traditional understanding of perseverance, some of which you have highlighted in your paper. However, I would like to ask about a difficulty I see on the other side. My question pertains to reconciling God's loving nature with the teaching that Christians can become lost or lose their salvation. If God, yes. if God loves his children enough to send Christ to die for them, why wouldn't he simply take the life of the believer before they apostatize, given his foreknowledge that if they're kept alive, they will apostatize? After all, God is in control of when we die, and Scripture repeatedly affirms that God loves his sheep deeply and desires none of them to be lost. See now you notice, what's the basis of that? The shepherd chooses the sheep. Unconditional election, which is denied by William Lane Craig um, in favor of the autonomous actions of man, even though, I mean, the most connect can say, well, yes, there is election because God chooses everyone who's going to be saved. But he only does so based upon knowing that putting them in certain situations will cause them to be saved. That's why there are certain people God can't save. Because there is no given set of circumstances wherein they could be saved. I, I suppose there might be some other people that could not help but be saved. Because in any set of circumstances, they will accept Jesus. Well, except they've never heard of him, I suppose. Hmm. I don't know. Anyway... But you, you have to differentiate. In the, if you're functioning on middle knowledge, you can say God elected someone, but that's only because that someone fit into the scenario, the possible world, that fits the parameters that God's attempting to accomplish. Okay? That's totally different than God freely choosing a people in Christ Jesus. That's... They're very different things. To me, that it is well within God's capabilities and that it is more consistent with his character to take one's life while they are still in a state of grace. My mind jumps to 1 Corinthians 11.32, which appears to repeat this sentiment. If he is able to, then, well, then why doesn't he? I would love to know your thoughts on this as I have a hard time reconciling God's love with his allowing apostasy to occur, especially when it appears it could be prevented. The answers to all of this are found in Reformed theology and, and have been... For a long, long time, um, there are no answers to this within the Molinistic system. That's the, I just feel sorry for some of these people writing in. I, I hope they find those answers somewhere else. Well, I'll invite you to read your answer to him. All right, here's what I wrote in reply. This is a really thought-provoking question about which I've never really thought. 
So let me offer just a couple random thoughts here that may stimulate further thinking about the subject. One way to respond to the question is to affirm that this is exactly what God does. He ends the life of would-be apostates before they fall permanently away. The obvious challenge to this response is that we seem to have good examples of people who do apostatize. But here we have to differentiate between such alleged cases and people who temporarily fall away and then eventually repent and come back to faith, like the Apostle Peter. How do we know that persons in Scripture who seemingly apostatize, like Demas, do so irrevocably and do not come back to Christ, even on their deathbeds? Okay, so there there have been a few biblical examples, but no texts examined yet. Where, where would you go at this point? you got to go to 1 John 2. They went out from us, so it might be demonstrated not truly of us. They have been of us. They would have not gone out from us, etc., etc. That's where you'd go. But that doesn't really fit this scenario, so they, he doesn't end up going there. Moreover, we must differentiate from permanent apostates, people who never had genuine saving faith in the first place, but merely a counterfeit. What's genuine saving faith? Again, the Reformed person has, has can deal with this, you get gen, regeneration, the gift of faith, so on and so forth. But if you are really affirming autonomy, then what is genuine saving faith? What, what marks that? And where does it come from? That, that would be one of the questions. Faith, like Judas. In cases of counterfeit faith, apostasy does not truly enter the picture. So on this view, although it is possible to apostatize and forfeit salvation, no one ever actually does so. As you explain, this is a Molinist viewpoint, rather like the views I describe in my article. I suggested that God might provide gifts of grace that he knew would be effective in winning the free perseverance of the saints. So in the so he knows what free gifts of grace will be effective in creating perseverance. And what on on what basis? Middle knowledge. So he knows that for certain people if you give them certain gifts of grace, they will persevere. So that, that now has to be factored into the creation of this perfect world. And so really part of, the, part of the question now is, well, if that's the case, then is apostasy a part of the um, equation for determining the best possible world? Not only how many people get saved, but how many people endure to the end starts getting really, really difficult. You suggest that if that's not feasible, then he just kills off the would-be apostate. The implication of both views is perseverance of the saints along with libertarian freedom. An alternative view would be to say that God has morally sufficient reasons for allowing someone to freely apostatize despite God's every effort to save him. For God's concern is not just with an isolated individual, but with a whole world of free creatures whom he seeks to draw freely to salvation. It may be that if, for example, he kills off Joe before he can fall away, then his little daughter Sherry, embittered by God's taking her daddy prematurely, refuses to come to faith in God, and maybe even falls away from faith herself, in which case God has to kill off Sherry too before she can do so. I think you can see how quickly this can get out of hand. Maybe Sherry, or her child, or grandchild, etc., had God not killed off Sherry's father, and hence Sherry herself, would have become a great hymn writer or Christian doctor who would help to bring thousands to Christ. Rather than a single apostate in hell, 
one might wind up with multitudes in hell instead. When we remember that God's goal is to bring an optimal number of people freely to salvation, it's not at all implausible that such a world would include some apostates. Okay. Now, okay. I, I feel, honestly, for people who get stuck in situations like this where you've, you've, you missed the turn three turns ago, and now you're 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 trying to deal with the map, and it's, it, it, it ends up it's messy. But when you start trying to force God's actions to be determined by His middle knowledge, which does not originate in Him, and is not a part of His decree, you are trying to defend the autonomous free will of creatures at the cost of the autonomous free will of the creator. That's what all these systems are. Instead of an autonomous, free creator who weaves the fabric of time to his own glory, that's the focus, not the free will of man. God's own glory changes everything changes everything. So you're, the Calvinist isn't sitting around going, um, well, uh, if such and such a person dies off early, then this could result in this. And that means down the road, there's uh, this great Christian doctor that was supposed to bring thousands of people to Christ. He's not going to be born or uh, he's not going to be a Christian. And, and, and No, that's not a part of... No prophet of Yahweh thought that's how God did things. None. That's obvious, isn't it? Can we can we can we say it? that's obvious? It is. Um, and so this kind of of tremendous confusion comes from starting on the on the wrong foot. What a compelling question and uh, an answer there, Bill. And you know, back when I was in junior high, we, I used to just fret over things like this. <laughs> junior high and high school, uh, uh, you know, if, uh, if shouldn't we kill our babies before they reach the age of accountability oh. to ensure uh-huh. that they got to have an, or the minute somebody gets saved, you ought to take them out behind the church and shoot them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and things yeah. like that. You know, we used to fret over that. So you're, you're giving. The Molinist perspective really, really helps here. The Molinist perspective really, really helps here. <laughs> Okay, I never thought about taking people out back and, and shooting them once they got saved, uh, personally. Um, but, uh, you know, I get it. If you, if you don't understand that God is working his purpose, it's his purpose. It's not, it's not, it's not man-centered. It's God-centered. Uh, those are all thoughts that come from a very man-centered theology. And uh, once you're delivered from that... Yeah. Now, Jonathan sent this to a theologian friend of his who is kind of a universalist, uh, leaning that yeah, way right now. Yeah, that's key. Um, he says, uh, this is awful that God is, uh, uh, is a clumsy half-wit on this view who breaks many lives in the making of the salvation omelet. Now, now just, I, I can't resist interrupting at this point. Sure. To, this is where you see the emotional undertone and rejection of a view here that I think deserves serious consideration. Molinism does not postulate a clumsy, half-wit demiurge as its deity, but rather one who is endowed with middle knowledge um, and therefore able to providentially order the world. So right off the bat here, we're seeing a very angry, emotional response by this universalist to 
this Molinist perspective. Yeah. Now, sometimes the, the clearest expressions come when you're responding to an attack. And so here is an attack upon Dr. Craig's position. And that's where he says, in describing God, says he is endowed with middle knowledge. Now, I was told by someone that, that Craig either no longer uses or has repudiated the example that he used a number of years ago, that God has to deal with the cards he's been dealt. So there is a co cosmic card dealer who is the or that's the origin and source of middle knowledge. As he said, this person's going to be this way, this person's going to be that way. Who is that card dealer? We don't know. Um, if he has actually repudiated that, if he's actually come out and said, you know what, that's a, that is a bad example. I shouldn't have ever said that. There, God is not dealing with the cards he's been dealt. I don't see how that, I don't see how he can say it because that's his, that's what his position is. That's, that's what this is all about. That's what middle knowledge is. I mean, that's just a colloquial expression that accurately expresses it. That's all. Um, but this being endowed with this knowledge, which does not have its origin in him, is what limits his capacity and ability to do things, which then gives the ground for the, all this speculation going on. You, you, you have yet, you had a couple people in the Bible mentioned You've not had a single verse exegeted, not a single verse even cited. Well, as you probably noticed in talking with me, Ben, I don't lead with the Bible. I lead with philosophical arguments. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just play this a second time, just to, in case you, you missed it. In talking with me, Ben, I don't lead with the Bible. I lead with philosophical arguments, beginning very generally. There's a creator of the cosmos. There's a designer of the universe. There is an absolute moral good which furnishes a basis. So, so why, why can't I demonstrate the consistency of biblical revelation with things outside of it? Why do you have to start with those things? You see, there's just an embarrassment uh, amongst the people who hold this perspective. There's an embarrassment about the primacy of Scripture. There's an embarrassment of the fact that Jesus never did this, that Jesus never led with philosophical arguments. Paul never led with philosophical arguments. Peter never led with philosophical arguments. And they'll dismiss all of that, saying, well, they, they weren't dealing with the situation we're dealing with today. So we, they'll, they'll admit, yeah, we don't have any apostolic example of doing this, but this is why we do it. And the, when you really boil it all down, it's because we're embarrassed and that's First Corinthians 1 all over again. The preaching of the, the message of the cross, the logos of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, and it will always be. And as long as we want the world to pat us on the back for being really smart scholars, then we'll, we'll be embarrassed by that stuff. You got to stop wanting the world to pat you on the back.